This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back. This is the Struck Podcast. This is the big 2-0. Alan, episode 20. How you doing? Great, Dan. Exciting week. Another great week of news in aviation. You know it seems slow out there. Not a lot of airplanes are flying. The aviation business is busy. Yeah. So today, uh, we're going to cover a bunch of different topics. So in our news section, um, what seems to be a ransomware attack at Garmin, pretty scary stuff. Uh, we're going to chat a little bit about Airbus, um, their autonomous taxi takeoff. They've done some landing tests, really interesting stuff there, uh, and a little bit of a scary storm incident out of Russia with a, a quite old AN-24 aircraft. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the EPA and some potential um, environmental limits they're going to set on aircraft, it seems like, some emissions testing. And lastly, uh, a couple different uh, EVTOLs. Uh, so Saberwing, they've got some interesting stuff going on with cargo transport. And lastly, a pretty interesting letter from Lilium about their view on really short trip uh, flights. So Alan, let's get started with Garmin. So they haven't said the words ransom, but this seems like textbook ransomware, which is really scary for any business owner when you start to hear these, especially with bigger companies. but. What's your take here with the Garmin situation? We've been seeing a, a lot more ransomware attacks in aerospace in the last six months to a year. And it's not surprising that Garmin was the focus of one of those ransomware attacks just because they're one of the more prominent electronic, uh, highly integrated aviation, avionics companies with a lot of technology and probably a lot of information on servers. And so it's not surprising that, that they would be a, an attack point. And plus, they're just a kind of a global company now. So there'd be a lot of ways to infiltrate them. And it's, it kind of sounds like, listen, just w- watching some of the news reports that it was via um, you know some sort of email that triggered the, the system to go haywire. But when those events happen, what's what what I'm hearing from the engineers from different companies, not not just garment specific is that everything gets shut down so they lose all the internet phones internet connectivity all access to drawings and everything that an engineer would need or basically taken offline so it, it shuts down the company and if there's any uh, if it is a true ransomware where they're asking for money it has to be a big trade-off obviously and what a, what seems to be happening at most of these places is the companies are calling the fbi they're not playing uh, they bring in the federal investigators immediately to one try to help them figure out what they need to do next, but two stop it from happening to somebody else because this sort of nonsense has got to stop. And you got to wonder where someone with like Garmin is a very technology-driven company and very forward-thinking that they hadn't had systems in place to prevent this from happening. So, so there's a little more post-mortem to happen, and the news has just been trickling out over the last couple of days. So we, we need to keep a sense of, you know, this is here where this is where this goes, 
because this, this won't be the last attack, but let's just hope that Garmin and the FBI and everybody involved is, is passing along the information so that the other aerospace companies and other companies across the United States in particular uh, don't have this happen. Troubling. Yeah, so it sounds like Wasted Locker is the 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 cyber weapon, the brand of, uh, of ransomware that... But you're right, Garmin seems like they played this pretty close to the vest. And uh, I, I don't know, I, mean, I imagine that becomes like a, a point of embarrassment for such a high-tech company. But at the same time, you just, like you said, you can't plug every potential leak no. where if it only takes, you know, one email or whatever it is, and maybe it's, you know, the the old like, hey, you've won $11 million from some random person in some random continent, right? Like, I'm sure it wasn't something like that, but these things have gotten very sophisticated and sure. you just never know, I guess, you know, it's crazy. Well, it's in the United States, it's happened to national political parties mm-hmm. frequently. And you have to think that they have access to some of the best security technology in the world. You'd hope so. Um, and a company like Garmin doesn't have those resources to play with. But still, uh, you, you got to wonder what Garmin's next steps are because one, they got to get up back up and running again. That's the first thing. And then two, um, they got to figure out a way to prevent this from happening in the future. Yeah. So Airbus, uh, they have a self-flying plane, just completed successful tax, uh, taxi, takeoff and landing. So this is not a small plane either. This is a A350-1000 XWB. And uh, obviously like full scale, like commercial plane, which is pretty cool. So is this getting close to market? Is this something that's in our near future autonomous or are we still ways away? Well, I, I kind of wonder if this is driven by all can, the... Can I fly the plane? Like, just can I, I be pilot? Just go push the button? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> fine, that, fine. That will not happen. Not for a long time. But I, I it's a, a large airplane. The A350 is a big airplane. The Dash 1000 is, is a very long aircraft. Uh, I think Airbus is flexing their muscle a little bit. And I think Boeing would would have done it already too if they could have. But they got other problems right now they're trying to deal with. The ability to fly an aircraft autonomously of that size, and particularly taxi. Taxi is probably the, the place where there's a lot more difficulties. Uh, it is not easy. So, so you have to have a very, very talented engineering staff to even get close to doing something like that. And great software engineers. And with all the EV electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft talking about being autonomous and Honeywell and some others and Garmin doing a lot of things that are nearly autonomous. I'm not surprised that Airbus just stepped up and said, okay, watch this. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. away they, and away they went to show that, yeah, Airbus isn't playing either. And they, if they wanted to do it, they could do it. But I, then on, the, on the other side, Airbus has watched some of the problems that Boeing and Airbus has had with pilots making mistakes in the air. And I know Boeing this past week talked about, their their CEO was talking about how the aircraft is going to be more autonomous and that they weren't going to let pilots make uh, as many uh, critical decisions where they could get the aircraft in trouble. And Airbus has been down that path, was down that path long ago. So I'm not surprised that Airbus is doing it. How how they would ever? I don't think they're wherever to the point in the next ten years. I don't see there's going to be autonomous aircraft in a commercial sense, uh, either cargo or uh, commercial flight. But 
if it does release some of the burden on the pilots and make the airplane fly cleaner and smoother on all that, I would expect a lot of those pieces of information that they've that Airbus has developed on this project will be integrated into the aircraft over time. They will be. Well, how does this affect pilots in the long term? So say, you know, 10 years from now, pilots don't have to take off. They don't have to land and they don't have to do that much. Do they become quickly out of practice at like actually having to do these things Is say the system is like not working one day and they have to land it and they haven't landed a plane in a hundred flights? I mean, is this, you know what I mean? Like if you don't mm-hmm. cook dinner every night, do you get rusty at, at whipping up a really nice meal? You know what I mean? Yes, I think that's totally true. I, it's just a human nature outcome that, that it's inevitable. The, the, the other side of that is companies like Airbus and Boeing, the big aircraft company, have the ability to create simulators and put pilots in simulators and to have them, quote unquote, fly the airplane. Um, because the, the one thing, you, if you don't want to do, is burn a bunch of fuel getting a pilot up to speed if you don't have to. Um, yeah. And if there's any complacency, the regulatory bodies like EASA and the FAA will be all over it. And the, the first people usually complain about not getting enough flight time are the pilots, quite honestly. They want to be as proficient as ever. That's that's the big push by all the pilots' unions is proficiency, proficiency, proficiency. And proficiency means seat time actually flying the airplane. In fact, uh, I remember flying on Southwest a couple of times. And this, that's, this has been 10-ish years ago, maybe a little bit longer. I remember flying. I could remember the aircraft being hand-flown for landing. And I thought, boy, that is so odd because it's been the longest time that I've been on an aircraft that's been hand flown because you just put the autopilot on, you, you dial on the, you, you put in the flight path and it just flies it. But the Southwest, I asked the Southwest pilot while I was leaving the airplane, you flew that, you flew that by hand all the way down. He goes, yeah, it's, it's, it's he said, it's, it's good for us pilots to fly the aircraft. It just gives us more proficiency. So I don't see this taking over all the time, but I do think there are times when having redundant systems or helpful systems on aircraft can keep pilots out of trouble. Yeah, that makes sense. So there was a incident recently with a Russian AN-24, which you said is a pretty, it's a pretty old airplane. It's going on 50 years now. What did you say? It was 1973? 73. Yikes. But so one of these... <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> bell-bottom era this plane's uh, right. <laughs> yeah it's, it's tough it's tough to have the same aerodynamics with bell bottoms but <laughs> it, it says this plane unintentionally flew into a heavy hailstorm, uh suffered radome damage a couple lightning strikes on its right hand elevator so what are the i mean they talked about this potentially just being insufficient experience uh, of these pilots and really just they didn't do a good job of using the onboard weather radar but you said the weather radar may not work that well yeah, on such an old aircraft is that right it's an old aircraft and the the radars back in the 1970s weren't the best in the world and that old of an aircraft there may not be a lot of reasons why you want to upgrade the weather radar system in it so then me flying with a really old weather radar system and the the problem with old radars coupled with old nose radomes is the old nose radomes get full of water and you start giving you false images or images where the sky is clear when it's not because anytime there's hail or convective activity that would lead to hail big sleet um, really detrimental winds in terms of aircraft safety 
those show up on the radar as red, orange, bright orange, bright red, sort of on the on the radar. Every aircraft yeah. I've ever flown in, it's always ever shown that, and we've always been able to fly around that stuff. So there's no pilot worth their salt that's going to fly through the heart of a thunderstorm just because of the outcome, which is if you do have fly through hail, you're going to do a lot of damage to that aircraft, and someone's going to be really, really upset when they find you. And in this particular case, you kind of wonder if it's, it was just sort of inevitable. If, was the equipment working correctly? Could the pilot tell what was going on? Did he have any help from from ground control as to or th- their kind of FAA system over there as to where they were going to? Because the FAA would try to flag you like, hey, there's a thunderstorm ahead. You may want to go around it. That kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, at the, very, at the very least, just dip. Du- what is it? The six dot. The six D's of dodgeball. Dip dive. Duck, dodge, dodge, whatever it is. Just get out of the way of that hill. Yeah. It's in everyone's best interest. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it trashes an airplane so fast. It not only just ruins the radon, the windshield, the leading edges, the engines, it just tears everything up. And the engines have some means of trying to divert the hail away from the critical parts of the engine so the engines don't stop. But it doesn't mean that yeah. the airplane's not going to get beat up. It will. All right, so in our engineering segment today, we're going to quickly chat, which this is interesting to me. Uh, so the, uh, the EPA is proposing airplane emission standards, and they're saying essentially that, you know, because aircraft account for 12% of all U.S. transportation greenhouse gas emissions and 3% total in the U.S., that they should start to be regulated somehow. So as far as you know, I feel like this fits in engineering because, I mean, they've got to make some significant modifications to these engines or the fuel or both or, but, but tell us what goes into them complying with regulations like this? Cause changes have to be made. I, I would assume. It's not going to take place really till about 2028. So existing aircraft will be exempted from that regulation, but the, you're getting forced down really well, three paths higher efficiency engines, and we're doing that via a number of different ways, gearing, uh, basically quasi-transmissions between the hot and the cold sections of the engine. So there's more fan, less jet, uh, moving to some sort of synthetic fuel that has less carbon emissions, which there's a lot of biofuels being tested. I think I read the other day there's like 10 or 12 approved different biofuels. Those are going to become more prevalent. And then the electric aircraft is obviously one of the possible solutions in terms of lowering overall emissions. But one of the things we just take a step back a minute, the aircraft industry and the aerospace industry in general has been really ahead of the times in terms of reducing emissions or in particular fuel burns because fuel is expensive. And it's one of the primary drivers for airlines is costs is fuel burn. So there's been a big push to make the engines more efficient, to make the aircraft more efficient. And that's why you see all the, let's just use a 737 for, as an example, the original 737 way back in 1975 where it was, had jet engines on them. They were the dirty, smoky, straight, hot gas coming out the back end jet engines. And as you've seen over time, they've gotten, the engines have gotten larger, 
which means there's a larger cold section to them. And they got a lot more efficient because they're using electronics to control them and to control the fuel burn and to burn them as most efficiently as they can. And the aerodynamics have gone up in the engines as we have computers to, to simulate the airflow and all those good things. So it isn't like the aircraft industry has been sitting around just chugging fuel. That has been the opposite because because the cost of fuel is a driver so much that the engines and the efficiency of the aircraft are just getting pushed and pushed and pushed by the airlines. Yeah. So it's not as much even an environmental situation where they are like, yeah, let's save the planet. They're like, let's save money right, and make this easier on us. So that's I think that's the ideal because if it was the opposite where they're like, no, killing the planet is way cheaper, they would be, I'm sure, lobbying the heck out of this to maybe not, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, you got the winners. It predicts winners and losers yeah, on a, in a sense, right? Cause it, it, it It's, it's going to force out countries that haven't developed engine technology just well they won't be able to play ball and they won't you know they can think about all the investment they have to make to get to that point is just another barrier to entry so you really need a way off is it good for um possible like india let's just pick india for example just because it's a large country and he has a lot of engineering capability does it prevent them from designing a new engine it may it totally may so Airbus, Boeing, Rolls-Royce, GE, um, pick all the engine manufacturers and the whole pile of them that are going to be sort of the winners in that, it, and everybody else is going to be left out. I'm not sure that's always a good thing. Um, mm. Yeah, gotta, I guess I didn't think of it that way. The haves and haves not have-nots might get farther apart. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's job security for Airbus and Boeing. It has to be. Bombardier, Embraer. Uh, so you, Bombardier, you know, all, all the all the small aircraft makers are going to be in the same boat, right? They're, they've going to be able to invest the money and do this thing like it's like they're walking down the street. Everybody else has a big hill to climb. All right, so we got a bunch of stuff to cover here in our third segment, which we're going to chat about some more uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. So. First, uh, let's talk about Lilium. So this article uh, by their chief operations officer, it was pretty interesting. So they basically said like, hey, we're not doing this short trip stuff. We're not doing 20 kilometers and under. And they gave this pretty long you know, rationale for why they feel like it doesn't make sense financially, why it doesn't make sense from an infrastructure standpoint. Um, and that's not really going to save anyone time because when you factor in the cost of going down the street to get to your vertiport or whatever you'd call it at that point and you know climb aboard blah blah blah, then shoot you know across manhattan to drop your kids off at school by the time you go through all that it's going to take an hour and 10 minutes or something and then Mm -hmm. you would have been maybe better off just taking a limousine or a bus or an uber or whatever or the metro right right and so they said hey we know there's this big competition to get all these things to market and but anyway our company is going to focus on 20 kilometers which is 12 miles and larger and so they're you know they're giving examples of going from zurich to geneva zurich to lugano um you know in the u.s san francisco to santa cruz or to palo alto san francisco to lake tahoe obviously like high high net worth areas you know tech executives want to shoot over to lake tahoe from Mm -hmm. their san francisco office you know it could take an hour versus three three or four hours by car so i think that makes sense but i mean what's your what's your take on this i mean is this like another nail in the coffin for the potential you know air taxi situation within cities or does this uh what do you think 
Well, they're looking at essentially urban planning. That's what it comes down to and, and how their technology can be integrated with the overall landscape of urban planning in terms of ground transportation, which is electric trains, electric cars, uh, and obviously the Uber situation, which is never going to go away, at least in our lifetime. Taxis are still kicking around. Uh, I think they're going to have a hard time making the case and i'll give it to you this way when if you were going to hop on on a, an existing airplane so say you had a cessna 172 pretty simple airplane kick the tires do the walk around make sure it's got fuel in it drain the all the stuff it takes a long time to get that aircraft up and running so by the time you drive to the airport get out go through secure little security check get out there get the aircraft fueled all the other stuff you you smoked an hour and by the time you take an off, he's probably smoking an hour and a half. And you haven't gotten anywhere yet. And I, and I think that pre and post flight stuff adds significant amount of time where, where if you're not going but 10, 12 miles, you just walk into the driveway, hop in your electric Tesla, and you could be there by now. Yeah. So there's that trade-off of the overall time. And George Byers kind of talked about this at By Aerospace a little bit of how fast you can get in and out and how much simpler electric aircraft are. Yes, that's all true, but there's there's a certain minimum things you're going to do before you get yourself off the ground. And I think Lilium is starting to realize their opportunity is not so much in going from my driveway to the local pizza stand. Their opportunity is going from my local airport to the airport that's 20, 25 miles away, where it's going to take a lot longer in a car than it would in a, in a and it's short aircraft. So it's going to, you know, I think everybody's trying to figure this out, Dan. And I don't know if there's any real way of knowing until you start putting the product in the hands of people. Like, I'll give you the case of the iPhone. I would never have thought of, and neither did Apple for that matter, like the app situation would never occurred to Apple to sell apps or to sell software to, for people or to let people put their own apps on their iPhone. That was not a thing, right? So, in this particular case of aircraft usage, you're not going to know until you get a couple thousand out there to see how people use them. The same thing happened with Tesla on the cars. They just didn't know how they're going to be used until they got them to service. Yeah. And I was, uh, it's funny you bring that up because in one of these books that I'm listening to called Anti-Fragile, he's talking about in, even in business systems, he gave a number of examples like Raytheon was, was one example that Raytheon started off as an air conditioning manufacturer, I believe. I think uh, that's I think that's right. It could be wrong. Microwave? Was it microwave ovens? Uh, it, yeah, it might have just been appliances in general. Okay, yeah. And then they end be. up being what missile guidance systems. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and yeah, it's right, things, right, yeah. right, right, right around the corner from your microwave. But you know, he talks about so many businesses. Like, I wish I could quickly recall a bunch of examples, but I can't. Um, of just like businesses being ready to just pivot, right? And so right. this seems like a situation where all right, you've got your planes, you've got some things, like let's just start flying and see what happens and then see where it goes. Like maybe you become a cargo company. You know, maybe you become, That's right. you know, you become a air, air like uh, you replace uh, medevacs, like make, who knows like where it ends up going to be mm -hmm. profitable. Right. And it'll sort of figure itself out on its own and evolve. And uh, so that seems like people aren't really gonna know, like you said, until they start actually doing it and start to fail at some stuff and say, okay, how can we actually make money? Because 
because you're right if you're only doing four mile trips like how much can you really charge for that too for all the time that's right it takes to like you said to inspect each plane so it's rigorously safe and all that and then how much can you charge to go you know 30 blocks i don't know but yeah if you're like hey let's go all the way to you know lake tahoe it's, we can charge three times more yeah. whatever you know it, it probably starts to make more financial sense so they'll probably find that that butter zone where like you said it irons it out and maybe they haul some cargo too or who knows so it'll be interesting to see once they start going but right now it's just that race where no one's actually carrying anything no. with these evtols <laughs> they're just all talking about it all talk and yeah yeah so it'll be interesting when it starts to, to take flight but um in that same vein so Saberwing uh has kind of just like shot onto the scene a little bit but they've got 265 million in pre-orders they're backed by the u.s air force and uh what's interesting about the Saberwing is is kind of what we just mentioned which is that they're really just focusing on hauling cargo so what do you think of this business model as far as them being a windowless human humanless kind of uh you know well, at least no passengers um what do you think of their potential business model it could it could be a kind of a game game changer the the struggle i'm having with it is we haven't heard a lot about it which is odd and the air force is evidently poured a good bit amount of money into the program and helped out the company uh, with access to different facilities and they're talking about having it quote unquote certified by 2022 and if that's the case then it must be thoroughly through some sort of certification program and they must have been doing a lot of testing to make sure this thing's going to be okay my struggle with this is it doesn't look, and maybe this is all theoretical talking at the moment, but it doesn't look like a lot of the aircraft designs we're seeing now. Um, mm. it, with those ducted fans, it's it's four ducted fans that look like they pivot, at least two of them do. Uh, and if they do pivot, I know those ducted fans, a lot of the uh, EVTL companies have changed the design from a ducted fan to essentially blades in the open like a helicopter because they've had problems with transitions from forward flight to vertical flight that the air coming into those fans has kind of gets stalled out because it's angle attack and all these other things. Yeah. So it's not the best safe thing in the world. We're not having it, having cargo in it probably, you know, when you put a human in it, you want to have smooth transitions, right? Because everybody freaks out when the aircraft starts to do wild maneuvers, cargo doesn't care. <laughs> So you can do some really wild maneuvers, drop down a thousand feet or whatever, and no one's going to freak out if it's just cargo. So you can maybe not have the most efficient design in the world or the most um, smooth riding aircraft in the world. But uh, they're trying to fix a couple of problems that look like where they're trying to get cargo in remote places uh, without putting people on the aircraft at risk. Right, so if you have some forward deployed troops and you want to feed them ammunition or food or medical supplies, you can get it there without risking other people, which could make sense, right? Um, so I, I, we need to keep track of this. I just, it just feels wrong. You know what I mean? It kind of feels wrong right now, but they, maybe there's a lot of technology behind it, and it's going to be great. We'll just have to keep an eye on it. 
Yeah, the uh, the design in general looks very not conducive to hauling square packages. Also, that's like the first thing that sticks True. out in my mind. It looks like it's shaped like a like a dolphin, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it just I just look at it, and it, of course, it's way bigger than it appears in the renderings. Yeah, it, they said it's it it's is. comparable in size to a, a Cessna Citation, which is bigger. Know, is that a small? Oh, yeah, it's not a small. Yeah, it's like a fifty foot long business jet. Mm-hmm. So it's not small, but at the same time, it just you see all these, you know, just like with packaging on a supermarket shelf, like everything is manufactured to be tightly fit and not waste space. And this all thing right. just, lo- yeah. it just it just seems like it it reeks of wasted space but then again this is i'm sure far from the potential pro or this is they don't have a, a real prototype yet so well they're, they're, what knows. they could be doing is just trying to get something in service and see what it does which used to be the air force way of of development back in the late 40s after world war ii and into the 50s and 60s the number of aircraft that were produced and tried was incredible and then the price of an, a single airplane shot up so high that you couldn't do that anymore but with autonomous aircraft and the cost of a couple electric motors, you can do that now and play with a lot of different designs. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WG Lightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.